My name is Lalita Serpineni. I'm a physician in internal medicine at the University of Minnesota. I also belong to uh, Health Professionals for Healthy Climate. So that's a group of over 400 health professionals um, who are working together on uh, climate and how that relates to health. There you go, perfect. Okay, so um, I first wanted to acknowledge my privilege as a physician. I'm gonna be talking to you today about how climate change impacts some people more than others and about vulnerable populations. But as a physician, I have the scientific knowledge to know what the impacts are and how to protect myself. And if I do uh, face any of the impacts, I have access to healthcare so that I can take care of my health and my family's health. But that's not the case with a lot of patients that I see, and certainly not the case with many people in India where I'm from. So when I, I grew up in South India, um, and much like Misty, uh, I, I grew up with the philosophy that humans are part of Earth's ecosystem. And if we hurt the environment, we just end up hurting ourselves. Um, with that in mind, um, I wanted to share this quote from Paul Farmer. He's a physician who works in Haiti. Um, and this is something that's very central to climate justice. So uh, before I tell you all about what are the detailed impacts of how, when we say climate change impacts health, what do we really mean? Um, I wanted to share a story with you. So this is kind of a mix of a couple of different patient stories, that uh, patients that I have taken care of, and I've changed the demographics a little bit for uh, privacy. So I'm gonna talk to you first about a six-year-old, uh, let's call her Sarah. She lives in the inner city and she has asthma. Her mom has to work two jobs so that she can pay for um, Sarah's medicine, school, groceries, rent, all of that. Um, Sarah plays outside in the summer. Uh, that's because they wanna save money on electricity. But summer air is really bad for her because what happens in uh, hot summers is that the air stagnates and when it's polluted air, um, the pollutants that get released from cars, from buildings, um, all of this kind of uh, bake together in sunlight and form ground level ozone. Now we all know about the ozone up in the stratosphere that's supposed to protect us, right? The ozone layer. Uh, when it's at the ground level, that's really bad for our health and it triggers asthma attacks. So Sarah now gets an asthma attack and she has to go into the ER. Uh, and her mom has to take time off from work. This is the fifth time that Sarah has to go to the ER. So her, Sarah's mom's boss is not very happy with her taking another day off and says maybe she should find another job. Sarah comes into the hospital. Um, she hasn't been able to fill her inhalers. So she gets an eye roll from the intake staff at the ER. Um, as she gets some inhalers, feels better. Luckily, she doesn't have to be admitted and she gets to go home. But now she's stuck with this huge bill and you either pay the bill and don't pay the rent, and then that puts you closer to eviction. And this is not a fictional story. This is something that I see my patients go through, the challenges of managing, of uh, being able to afford their medications and you know, distributing that money in the rest of their life. And um, if we talk about how, you know, we've heard already today about how climate justice is not in isolation. And this is kind of the first uh, picture for us to understand that. Today, in four out of 10 Americans still live in areas with um, air, level, air pollution levels that are unhealthy. 
Forty percent, um, uh, African Americans are exposed to 40 percent more polluted air compared to their Caucasian counterparts. Seventy-five percent. African Americans live in, uh, are more likely to live in fence line communities, which is uh, communities that are right next to fossil fuel infrastructure. And uh, Catherine mentioned this earlier, 55411 in Minnesota, it's the um, zip code where we have most number of ozone-related um, asthma hospital ER visits. And this is where climate change comes in. So with uh, right now in Minnesota, uh, like uh, Tim mentioned, we do have really good air quality, but that's being threatened because with our summers getting hotter, um, all over the country, we're seeing a rise in ozone levels. So since the 1970s, where we had the Clean Air Act, our air quality is actually improving, but climate change is now cutting into those gains and uh, increasing the number of high ozone days. And um, as we all know, climate change will also make wildfires more common and also more severe. And I'm sure you all remember from last summer where we had the Pacific Northwestern wildfires and Canadian wildfires and the smoke blows into me. Um, so, I wanted to share this with you. As, as we've already seen, climate change never operates alone. Um, it kind of, you add it onto a layer of already existing social injustices. So in Sarah's case, for example, we had problems with access to healthcare, uh, cost of medication, minimum wage. Uh, we had problems with systemic racism uh, in, this, in, in medicine and also in housing. Um, so all of these issues kind of come together. And the way um, justice is a very, very basic concept that all of us understand, but uh, scientists want to make it into a, a floor sheet here. So uh, this is the way I uh, can look at why uh, uh, I told you that only some people are affected more than others, and so uh, when we try to figure out how, um, this is the uh, diagram that we use. So one is exposure. So for example, in Sarah's case, she's playing outside, which increases her exposure. The second thing is sensitivity. So if you are a child or an older person, your uh, physiology is just not able to deal with some of the environmental threats. And if you have a disease to begin with, like asthma, you're more prone to it. And then the third thing is adaptive capacity. So if there is an event, are you able to go inside and you know, protect yourself? Do you have medications to help you out? Uh, so these are the three things that kind of lead into uh, where we, we will see health outcomes. Uh, this framework also is very helpful to understand what we can do to uh, kind of decrease some of those effects, but it's not perfect. And I'll tell you a little bit later why. But now I want you to take a trip with me to India. Uh, this is another six-year-old. Oh, oh, I it again. Okay, this is another six-year-old. She lives in a village um, just a little bit outside of New Delhi, and um, she lives in a hut where her mom uses this open cook stove uh, to cook food. Because she's a girl, she is not allowed to go to school, so she spends most of her time in this house breathing in that smoke from that cook stove. There's also a lot of outdoor air pollution. And in her village, uh, climate change is resulting in drought, and so her family doesn't have access to food, and she's very malnourished. And being exposed to this polluted air uh, puts her at risk for getting a pneumonia, and um, when she does get a pneumonia, her family doesn't have the money to take her to the doctor. 
and there is no hospital close by for them to go. So she passes away. Seven million people each year around the world uh, die prematurely from air pollution. And two-thirds of the burden is in Southeast Asia. Again, when we look at this, it, it, there are so many issues at play here, and climate change is not the only one. There's issues of gender equality, um, food security. There's um, you know access to healthcare, again, and also climate change that's causing more drought. Now we'll come back to Minneapolis. Uh, so something that we don't hear about very often, how climate change uh, causes health impacts, is heat. And especially prominent in the city is urban heat island effect. Um, and you can see the numbers here, but we, there's a significant difference between urban and rural areas in how heat operates. Um, if we think back to that framework of exposure sensitivity, um, the people that will be more exposed again are young children who play outside, construction workers, and people who are not able to go inside, which would be a lot of homeless population, and we see this at the hospital all the time. Um, elderly are more prone to the impacts of heat as well, and this again becomes a problem if you don't have access to air conditioning. Um, if you want to come back to Asia with me, to Pakistan, this is, these, are pictures, uh, these are pictures from 2015 heat wave in Pakistan. And again, you can see that children and elderly are impacted the most. There were 2,000 people who died in that heat wave, and the temperatures were as high as 120 degrees. We'll come back to the U.S., but this time we're going to talk about Hurricane Maria. Um, how many of you remember that there was this whole controversy around Maria about the death count, right? Yes, yeah. So when we hear about hurricanes and um, extreme weather events like uh, wildfires, there's always deaths, but uh, if we want to study more and understand where that comes from. So there was a huge discrepancy because typically when there's a hurricane, the first line of deaths happen from either drowning or injury, electrocution. Uh, once the actual hurricane passes though, especially something like Maria where the entire island's infrastructure was destroyed, uh, think about who are the people who, you know, if you need some type of an access to healthcare, there is none. So many roads were washed away. So if you had a heart attack, you can't go to the hospital. And then um, it, think about people who have uh, kidney dialysis. So you have kidney failure, and you have to go into a hospital three times a week uh, to get your blood cleaned out, essentially. And that takes electricity and clean water. And they didn't have any of those supplies either. And then there's waterborne infections that come from devastated infrastructure. And in, in case of Maria, the way that they could get the death certified was they had to take the body to San Juan uh, to a medical officer. And that's not a priority when your entire um, infrastructure has crumbled. And so there were researchers who went door to door and did uh, research and spoke with people uh, about who they lost, who their family members were. And we can also see why after a hurricane, it's the, the death count kind of keeps rising as uh, events related, there's like a ripple effect. 
Um, and I particularly remember the coverage around Maria being very similar to how we talk about uh, disasters in developing countries. Uh, it's somehow always the, the fault uh, that they didn't have good systems to begin with, and that's why they're facing these, uh, these uh, kind of massive adverse events. So I'll take you to Mozambique now. And you must have all heard about the Hurricane Idai that recently hit Mozambique. Uh, what's really interesting here, though, is they planned for this hurricane. They knew that climate change was going to cause more uh, severe um, hurricanes in this area. And so they actually had stormwater systems set up and uh, a lot of systems to take care of that extra water. But what they didn't plan for was the high winds that resulted in loss of so much infrastructure. Um, again, you know, if you come from uh, India or uh, other parts of the world, we don't have the luxury to deny climate change or sit and debate whether it's real or not because we're already seeing the impacts. Um, here, the other health impacts that also happen is that, as you can see, in the coastal area, the sea is pushed inwards with the hurricane, uh, the force of the hurricane that contaminates the water supply of the city. And you must all know about the bacteria cholera, right? That usually is in seawater. And so that comes in and contaminates your uh, water supply. And that results in, once the hurricane kind of immediate impacts go away, you have uh, the potential for a cholera outbreak. And then, you know, uh, coming from India, the other thing I think about whenever there's stagnated water is more mosquitoes and the potential for malaria outbreaks as well. So I want to go back to the system uh, because I told you I, it's not a perfect one because it never really, uh, there's two things that I don't really like about it, the word vulnerable, uh, because it kind of puts the burden on the person who's facing the impacts without necessarily talking about why. Um, and it also causes this kind of a pity reaction in us when you hear that word. But actually, the in many of the developing countries, including India, uh, we're doing a lot to uh, already adapt to the changes that are happening. As we heard today, even if we stop all fossil fuel production right now, we're still going to be living in a world that is very different. Um, recently in India, there was a storm in my, in my neighboring state of Orissa, and that's a state that's one of the poorest states in the country, uh, but they had a very good uh, hurricane warning system set up so that they moved a lot of people out of the way um, and uh, decreased their fatalities by a lot. And so um, I don't necessarily like the word vulnerable in that way, in, to use it in that setting. The second thing is that it doesn't address the why. Like I said, it doesn't talk about the many social injustices that have happened, uh, not, not just you know thinking on a, within the US, but also on a global scale, centuries of colonization, exploitation for resources that lead these countries, some of these countries to be in poverty. So I wanted to share with you some of the um, kind of disparities. This is a picture from the Poor People's Campaign document, and it shows about how uh, as the household income goes up, the uh, greenhouse gases you're producing go up as well. And as we've heard, uh, people with uh, low income suffer the impacts of climate change more. And this was uh, actually front page news for New York Times. Uh, what this paper showed was African Americans experience 
56% more air pollution than they're responsible for producing. Uh, Hispanic communities, 63% more than they produce. And Caucasians experience 17% less pollution than they produce. And if we look at a global scale, uh, we see that the top 10% of the richest countries uh, produce almost 50% of the greenhouse gases. And you can see that the poorest 50% uh, contribute to only 10% of it. And when we talk about justice, uh, there's also, I, I see it in so many different ways. There's definitely within our communities, the um, uh, people of color and low-income communities uh, experience a lot of disproportionate impacts. There's also globally the difference. And then there's a historical across generations, there's a difference in uh, climate justice as well, who produces it and who bears the burden. So 30 second video. So China really shot up there in the end, uh, but we can see that over the, you know, since the time of industrialization, the uh, production burden is different uh, for each country. And there's also some theories that if you take into account all the manufacturing that uh, China does, when you do the math, you, their emissions actually go down by 13%. This is based on data from 2004, so I don't know how it's going to look today. Uh, but there is a huge uh, out, outsourcing of CO2 to U.S. and U.K. because of their manufacturing. So what can we do about all of this? The, all the things that you've heard today, you've heard the speakers tell you a lot of things about how we can get involved, right? Um, and what I've been trying to tell you today is that uh, climate justice, environmental justice doesn't operate alone. It's because the other social injustices kind of prop it up. So that means we have to fix racism, we have to fix gender equality, we have to uh, take care of immigration. There are so many things that we need to uh, take care of before we begin to see impacts in climate justice. Um, and there was a study done, actually, that looked at all of the environmental uh, effects from 1987 to 2007 uh, by Dr. Bullard, who is the you know, father of environmental justice, and they found that not a lot of progress is being made, primarily because we're not able to fix these underlying social injustices. Justices. Um, and since this administration came into power, seven, over 78 environmental regulations have been rolled back. And by definition, every time you weaken environmental regulations, some people will be impacted more than others. So this can seem very overwhelming, but there's also another way to look at it. Um, you know, not all of us have the calling to work on climate or climate justice issues. There are so many things that we are very passionate about. So what we what this shows us is that we can, whatever field that we're working in, make a difference that will ultimately, you know, create a more just world from climate. So whether that's, you know, if you want to work on education, mass incarceration, uh, opioid epidemic, whichever field that you feel uh, you're calling to, if you work and make a difference, that will ultimately create a more just world. And I want to take it back to privilege. I started out by saying that I, I am very privileged as a physician, uh, but all of us in this room share a relative privilege, is what I'm going to say, uh, compared to people who live outside of United States. And that is we have, um, we have a way to use our voice in our democracy. 
Right now is probably not the time to be cheering on democracy, but uh, you know, we there are countries in this world where if you are protesting for environmental reasons, you could be put in jail or you could be killed. But for us, we could get on the light rail, get off at the Capitol, right, stop, and go to our uh, House representatives, go to our state senators, governor, talk to them. Every single day you can do that. Multiple times a day you could do that and make our voices heard. And we also have a free press. So we have the ability to get our uh, voices out there. So, you know, whether it just starts with talking to your family members, whether it is a Facebook post or whether it's writing a letter to the editor, in whatever way we want to communicate, we need to change the conversation around climate change. Even today, it gets talked about as an issue of the elites. And I, nothing you've heard today uh, justifies that fact. In fact, if you are able to have adaptive capacity, you are able to protect yourself from um, you know, the way that other people might not be able to. So we need to continue conversation on this. So. Um, I wanted to leave you, uh, oh, I wanted to talk about also my involvement in projects. Um, the first one is an incinerator campaign in Baltimore. And I felt, I really couldn't figure out my place in the whole environmental movement in the beginning. Um, I thought, you know, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a policy person. Uh, what do I know? What can I bring to the table? And so the first thing that I uh, did was to go to the community that was already working and fighting on this issue and ask them how how can my you know, skill set as a doctor help you? And that's another thing that we can do. We have wonderful organizations here. Um, uh, I'm, I'm partial to Minnesota 350. <laughs> uh, but you know, sign up with an organization, work with them to figure out how your skill can be used in, in, the, in this fight. And the second one, I was the frontline community with the oil trains. So as you know, Line 3 and Keystone XL, there's a lot of pipelines that we're fighting. And so what oil companies do is then put them on a train and send them through cities. So my hospital that I was working at was right next to the railroad tracks uh, for one of these oil trains. And so we passed a landmark legislation saying that Baltimore will not expand our oil terminals to allow more trains to come through. And that's the 100% energy uh, campaign that's going on now. Um, no matter how you intervene, you know, it's going to have an impact on climate justice. So if you want to call your senators and tell them to pass legislation on 100% clean energy, that's that would be a um, you know one takeaway from today and then I wanted to leave you with a cliffhanger so that you'll come back for the afternoon session and I want to talk to you about the 3.5% rule thank you so much <laughs>